He is risen. This uh, call and response comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24, where Luke records the story of the two disciples who encounter the risen Jesus, and as they ran back to Jerusalem, they find the 11 remaining shell-shocked disciples hiding, and they report that Simon Peter has just encountered the risen Jesus, and they say together, he's risen indeed, meaning it's true, it's really, really true, Jesus is risen, you know? And so this morning, we asked the most obvious, obvious question. Well, it's obvious to me. I've been thinking about it. Like maybe it's not as obvious to everybody. But the obvious question, I think, is this. What does Easter require of us? What does Easter require of us? In other words, Jesus is risen. What do we do? Do. What's the action? So let's make this huge correction right here, right now. Easter is not just simply some basic idea about the assurance that all of us who believe will have eternal life. Now, when you are children, just as Miss Jody did, you will tell them something that they can understand. They will tell them that it is all about that you're going to live forever, and that's it. But when you grow up, you must lose that and gain something more in addition to it, okay? The Jews already believed in eternal life. That was not something new to them. No, the resurrection is about an action. It's a resulting action. None of the four Gospels, none of the four Gospels, not one, have the followers in the post-resurrection Jesus sitting around saying like, Hey, Peter, hey, how about that promise of eternal life, huh? Isn't that just an awesome idea? Yeah, man, that's a new one. No, no, no four, not one of the four Gospels have that as a result. No, all four Gospels are filled with action and mission. Matthew, Gospel of Matthew, very end. Go and make disciples. All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Go and make disciples. Gospel of Mark, they went out and they proclaimed the good news everywhere. Action. Luke, here it is for you. This is written, thus it is written, the Messiah is to suffer and to rise from the dead on the third day and that repentance and forgiveness of sins to be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And see, I am sending you upon what, what my father's promised, okay? Which is the Holy Spirit. You're to go. The forgiveness and the repentance and so forth is for the forgiveness and repentance of people, not just individuals. It is a healing. It is peace. And even... The Gospel of John, which is not like the other three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. The Gospel of John has at the very end saying just simply this to one of the disciples. Follow me. It doesn't matter if he remains. You follow me. You've got work to do. Stop thinking about everybody else and what they're going to do. You. The good news validates Jesus' claims. He is the Savior. He is the Messiah. Jesus does forgive sin, and he will come again. The good news is this. Everyone should be taught what Jesus taught and that Jesus is with them always. In other words, the good news is about the arrival of the new kingdom and a new world order. A new king is here. We could say it this way. The disciples in all four gospels were more impressed that Jesus was alive forever rather than the fact that they were alive forever. 
Jesus is risen equates to Jesus is with us always. The disciples are more impressed that Jesus is alive forever rather than that they are alive forever. That was not the news to them. But that Jesus was alive and that everything he said was true and all of the promises from the Old Testament came true, all of it's happening, there is a kingdom, it just doesn't look like what everybody thought it was supposed to look like, that is what's rocking their world. That's why it's a call to action. That is the good news. The resurrection of Jesus validates all of Jesus' claim. And so, what does Easter require of us? What does Easter require of us? Here's exactly what it requires of us. And it's in a story. Luke chapter 24, if you're in your Bible. Luke 24. Two disciples of Jesus were walking home on Sunday afternoon, first day of the week. Jesus had risen that morning at dawn. A stranger a stranger, joins them on the road to Emmaus. Emmaus, seven miles outside of Jerusalem. If you're looking at the map, it's about 10 o'clock. Seven-mile walk. Not a, not a hard piece of work. Stranger joins them on the road. The disciples tell him how everyone believed that the kingdom of God was going to come through Jesus of Nazareth, that backwater country. He's going to come from Nazareth, and he's going to be a prophet in mighty in deed and word. And all of their expectations as a people are going to be fulfilled for Israel. Note self, the disciples did not have the expectation that Jesus was promising eternal life. That was not it. Jesus, he's walking with these two, and he's listening, and he's listening, and he's listening. Oh, uh-huh, really? Oh, yeah, this Jesus person, he's, oh, wow, mm-hmm, yeah. And they keep walking and walking, and Jesus is listening to the story, and finally the disciples say, some say that this morning he rose from the dead. Now, these two disciples are not staying in Jerusalem. They're walking home to Emmaus. So clearly, they don't believe that Jesus rose from the dead because they're going home. If Jesus was alive and they actually believed it, they'd be sticking around saying, where's Jesus? Where's Jesus? Where's Jesus? They're on their way home. And after listening and listening and listening, Jesus now speaks. How foolish you are, how slow of heart you are. How foolish you are, how slow of heart. I'm always impressed that that the word comes in heart, because it's not the way we think of it. We would have said, how slow of mind you are. Your thinking's not good. But he's saying, like, it's beyond just your thoughts. You don't have just disorganized thoughts. Your, your, your heart, the way you perceive the world and think and love, something's out of whack. It's slow. It's slow. It was all right there in front of their eyes. 1,400 years of history, the prophets and Moses and the Exodus and Joshua and all of it, right there. It was plain as the nose on your face. The Messiah was going to first have to suffer and then enter into his glory. Now, the two disciples, they suddenly begin to connect some dots. Okay, nice, wonderful, we get it. Oh, how the Messiah would suffer. We get it. Okay, yeah, he's going to suffer. It wasn't just going to be some military political victory thing. Yeah, okay, right, right. That's, that is what it says. He's, he's going to die on a cross. He's going to be nailed to a tree. I, oh, yeah, I see that too. Oh, the Messiah will enter into glory with the Father. Great. We get that now. I see it. That's really cool. It does make sense. But he died. He's dead. Hey, they've been walking along. Hey, you, stranger that we don't recognize as Jesus. Hey, smart, brilliant, intriguing stranger guy. It's getting dark. 
Why don't we just keep the conversation going? You can come to our house and eat dinner with us. You can just stay the night. Besides, just talking about it is really helpful because we're so sad because Jesus died and just talking about it, you know, it's a grieving process, yeah? And you're making a whole lot of sense. Maybe the two disciples will talk to all evening and make them feel better about the thing. So they... Uh, they um, they break bread together. They break bread together. They get in the house and they're going to break bread together. Now, here's an interesting historical twist. Bible background time. Usually, the homeowner is the host, right? Oops. The homeowner is the host and the homeowner is the one who breaks the bread. And hands it out to the people. Now, this isn't too far from the way we operate these days, right? You have people over to your house. You say, come on, come on. Everybody gets to the table, you know. And then you bring out the plate of food or it's all sitting there. And then you can do a prayer. And then you say like, okay, uh, you know, like here, here, guest. I'll serve you the food. You know, you don't eat yourself first and say like, you're, you're on your own, man. So, I mean, now in my family growing up, you're on your own. But nonetheless, um, so that's what we do, right? We all get this practice. But it gets more technical than that. In, in Bible times. The homeowner is usually the host. But what happens here in this moment is the stranger does really the culturally inappropriate thing. The stranger takes over as the commanding presence and acts as the host and picks up the bread, blesses it, and hands it to him, and poof, he vanishes. <laughs> He's gone. But at the same moment, suddenly the two walking home from Emmaus now in their house are like, that was Jesus. What is going on? And it was all in the breaking of the bread in that moment. Now, before we move another inch, this little cultural background thing. See, first century Palestine, the host always uh, picks up the bread and they, they touch it. They actually are touching the bread. Not very COVID-friendly, but what the heck. So they, they take the bread, and they break it, and they hand it to each other. Now, I'm sure there are lots of dissertations being written on this very sort of thing. As one of my um, professors said in seminary, he said, any 12-year-old slave girl could tell you in 15 minutes what most dissertations have been written about. And one of the things is, is how do you eat a meal? And in a lot of cultures back then, they probably did not have a thing called a fork. Forks are kind of a recent dealio. But you might have had spoons, but what you did have as a utensil is bread. Like, anybody ever go to Ethiopian food? You ever go to Ethiopian restaurant and they got that kind of wet, soggy bread? The food's awesome. Bread, not my, not my thing. I'm not into wet bread. But nonetheless, sorry, Ethiopians, your bread's, I'm sure it's good for you. But um, you take the bread and you, you use it to eat with. Use your right hand. All of us left-handers are profane, but uh, sinestral. So, um, you know, I'm left-handed, by the way. And um, you take your right hand, and that's your utensil. So it would make sense. The host takes the bread. They break it, and they're saying, here's your utensil. Here's your utensil. You may now begin to eat. Here you go. Participate with the platter, right? And that's the way it's kind of working. So all that kind of background goes in that bread becomes this really, really important thing. The host touches it, and he's saying, I'm sharing this piece of bread with you. When you take it from my hand, we around the table now are bound together by the breaking of the bread. We become one. And in Palestinian and Jewish culture at the time, 
That was extremely important of extending the right hand of fellowship, so to speak. It means we're not enemies. We are family. Okay? So this explains why Jesus in the upper room, he broke the bread and he passed it around. And why Jesus, you know, says, dipped it in the sauce with him, handed it to him, right? Go and do what you must do quickly. All of it begins to make sense when you see it that way. This also explains, just to kind of go a little step further off out there, this explains why when Jesus broke the bread and he passed it out to the feeding of the 5,000, they passed it out. It came from Jesus, the authority. He's the host. He's the one passing out the bread. But keep in mind, don't forget this detail. He gives it to his disciples to give to the others. The disciples are Jesus' agents acting on his behalf to feed the 5,000. This is a very, very important deal. It wasn't just an organizational strategy to get everybody fed. It was actually a, 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 a culturally important moment that it goes out from Jesus. So they hand, then the disciples hand it out, right? No wonder he tells those disciples that he has all authority in heaven and on earth. They're at the end of the gospel of Mark or Matthew. He has all authority in heaven and on earth. And he is giving that authority to the disciples. He's given them the bread. Go and make disciples. You now have all the authority you need. You have come to the table. Feed others. Action. So, all right, back to Emmaus. In the breaking and the placing of the bread in the two, the two people's hands, suddenly their eyes are opened. They belong. We're not our hearts burning within us. Now every single detail is clear. Jesus is risen. 1,400 years of history, Moses, the manna in the desert, the bread coming down from God's hand, the prophets, the 700 years prior, Isaiah declares that out of the stump of Jesse, King David's father, out of the stump of Jesse, a shoot will grow out. Isaiah chapter 11, the spirit of the Lord shall rest on him. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. With righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. The wolf shall lie down with the lamb. Nowhere in Isaiah is it saying, and they shall have eternal life and won't they have a happy Easter meal. All through there, it is talking about peace. The lion shall lie down with the lamb. What does Easter require of us? Action. Not just belief in eternal life, though that is certainly true. What does Easter require of us? Action. Each of us must make the journey. That Emmaus Road journey. The wolf and the lamb will lie down because the action says you must take the journey. Lose the idea of your hobby lobby lion and lamb sitting there together in some pasture together. That's way too corny. I get a little... If you're around me very much, I don't... Anyway, hobby lobby. So... And instead, what the picture ought to be hanging over your table in your dining room is you and your political people you disagree with. That's what the picture ought to be. The lion and the lamb lying down together. Jesus comes. The action is reconciliation, forgiveness of sin, and peace with the fact of eternal life. Take care of the poor. Be the people. Be Jesus. Heal the nations. That's what the prophets said. That's what Jesus fulfilled. That's the scales falling off the two on the road to Emmaus' eyes. They're like, oh, it's not about power and politics. It's about loving your neighbor as yourself. Because Jesus rose from the dead. 
take this journey, everyone. Everybody's got to take the Emmaus Road journey. It is a journey. When you take this journey, first off, you're going to have to recognize you have a deep burning passion within you to figure out what life is all about. And you know it, and this is the easy one. You know that in the quiet times of your life, you're thinking like, why am I here? Am I just here to unload the dishwasher and do it all again tomorrow? There's got to be more to life than this. Where are you going? What is my purpose? How shall I then live? Admit that you and I just have been going through the motions. And the Emmaus Road journey says, you never take that journey alone. You take friends with you. There are friends for the journey. And admit that Jesus is with you, but you cannot recognize him clearly. There is something veiled. And it is our obtuse thinking that keeps us from seeing Jesus. And that brings us to the second point. You're going to have to die on the journey. Something in you is going to have to die. And you know what it is? It's your old view of God and Jesus. That childhood God that you had, that, we, that I've heard people saying, like, yeah, I don't believe that anymore. That's a bunch of hooey. Like, good. Good. Maybe you're growing up. Maybe everything doesn't work out perfect. The God that you believe in now will never change your life. It's only the unimagined God that comes crashing into you, unbidden, unexpected, and most, most of the time, unwelcome. That is going to change your life. You're going to face a crisis. You're going to lose a love. A child's going to wander from the faith. You get a demotion. You get sick. You have cancer. You need another operation. The school you're trying to get into did not accept you. You break the law. You pay the price. Something goes really, really wrong. You face a crisis. And you say, God, why didn't you save me? Maybe you need a new God. What you're really wanting is a genie in a bottle. That's not God. Most often, each and every one of us at some point will have to lose the God we once imagined and open up our hearts to a new, more mysterious and magnificent God than you can ever imagine. Because the God you imagine right now will never change you. Cleopas and the other disciple, those are the two on the road to Emmaus, Cleopas and the other, they had to die to the Jews' big expectation that the Messiah was going to make Israel the new political military power. That's why Peter brought the sword. They thought, this is going to be a military victory, man. It's going to start right here. Angels are going to come down from heaven, and we're going to kick some Roman hiney, and it's all going to go good. And it didn't happen. So be ready for the spiritual death on the Emmaus Road journey because we really don't want Jesus to say to us too often, how foolish you've been, how slow of heart you've been. You've got it right here in front of you. You can't see. Don't you see it? Don't you see me everywhere in your life? Don't you see I've been on the road with you the whole way? Don't you see? Third thing, final thing, the Emmaus Road journey needs some bread. Now, I'm not talking like, you know, well, I mean, you might need some bread, but you've got to be submitted to Jesus and seated at the table. You've got to trust the stranger God. You've got to give up being boss of your life. You've got to open up your hands and receive the bread that's being handed to you. You can't say like, no, 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 I'm doing my own bread. No, no, it's not true. Someday, someday, like Jesus says to Peter, you're gonna, somebody else is going to grab you by the belt and take you where you don't want to go. You might as well get used to it. That is the spiritual journey. 
There's a stranger walking with you, and you better get used to it because they're going to hand you the bread, and you're going to have to be ready to receive it. Someone's going to put the bread in your hands. The result of burning hot and a passion for the good news begins when we truly begin to live through this eternity that begins. You're not going to live for another 30 or 40 or 50 years, everyone. You're going to live for another 30, 40, or 50 trillion years. You might want to start living it now, the way you're going to be living it in year 341 trillion. If you can't receive the bread, then you are slowly becoming spiritually dead. And as Jesus phrased it, do not fear those who can kill your body. Fear the one who has authority to cast you into hell. Fear spiritual death. The resurrection just shows that death is defeated. Now, let's start some serious living. Get to work. Sum up. Get some friends. Get ready for the transformation. You're going to have to die and open up your hands to receive the bread. We're not our hearts burning within us. Were we not alive? Wasn't that eternity right there in the palm of our hand? Isn't that what it's like to walk and talk and eat with the maker every day, every moment of, of, the, of, the, of our lives? Here's what you do. This is what it is to be a disciple. You look for Jesus everywhere you go. So today, this Easter day, here's what you do. Have a feast. Have a feaster east. Have a big one that causes you to lay on the living room floor. Have a feast. Break bread together. Be purposeful about serving each other. See each other that way. Wake up tomorrow and find a way to see Jesus through your normal everyday life. Look for Jesus everywhere. You are a stranger on the road and Jesus is walking with you. Do not be slow of heart and look for him. Train yourself, that's what it means to be a disciple, is to train yourself to see Jesus everywhere because you are on a mission to bring peace and reconciliation and forgiveness to this world. That is your calling. Not to just sit back and say like, whoo, boy, sure, I'm glad I got eternal life. Live that life and take that journey. And break bread together. Everywhere you go, school, work, at home, neighborhood. Jesus is listening and listening and listening. Oh, yes, tell me more. Oh, that's so interesting. That's what Easter requires of us. Amen.